Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Leo Barry was Mr. Everywhere in the AFL Grand Final week this year. With a swan scarf draped around his neck, Barry was in the Australian Financial Review on 3AW Radio and stuck on a boat on the Murrumbanang River for the Front Bar Comedy Show. You could be mistaken, he's employed full-time in the Swans Marketing Department. Barry, though, has always had a lot on his plate. From the moment he was drafted by the Swans from his hometown of Daniloquin in southern New South Wales, he's been on the run. The Swans relocated into Sydney, placing him in boarding school out of the limelight of Melbourne. Before long, he cracked the big time on the way to becoming a premiership player and an All-Australian defender. What most of us will remember was that mark to claim the Swans' first premiership in 72 years back in the 2005 Grand Final. Most don't realise, though, that while he was toiling away as a full-time professional footballer, Leaping Leo was preparing for his next career. He went back to school, obtaining an MBA while snaring part-time work at American financial giant Citigroup. In 2009, he hung up his boots and scored a full-time job as a stockbroker with Merrill Lynch. It was there he discovered the magic of small companies listed on the ASX. He spent the next six years learning the trade. Then, in 2015, he pivoted again, moving his burgeoning family to Melbourne, taking up a job at Funds Management Group Fairview Equity Partners. Since then, he has forged a career as one of Australia's leading small cap investors. Along with his partners, Michael Glenane and Tim Hall, they have funds under management of approximately $500 million, and the future looks rosy. I first met Leo in 2010 when I was a client of Merrill Lynch. He was green, and I wasn't sure he was cut out for markets. How wrong was I? Welcome, Leo. Good to have you on. Thanks, Matthew, and very good introduction. Yeah. And do you remember those days, those first few six months as a broker talking to small cap managers? It's frightening. It, yeah, well, it is a frightening story. And even coming out of uh, out of football and into um, investment and talking to you know sophisticated investors who <laughs> know a lot more about markets. That's kind. Than, <laughs> no, well, especially in your case, they know a lot more about, uh, about markets. It, it certainly was daunting. And probably the other thing that was very daunting, you know, I played professional sport for 15 years and I think I had to sleep every afternoon. And the early morning starts at uh, being at the desk. 6.30, certainly in those first you know, six to 12 months, really uh, warmer down, but it was, a, it was a great experience. And did you feel out of your depth for a while? Most people do when they go into a new job. That period at Merrill Lynch when you were picking up the phone and ringing your new list of clients? I did. I suppose in some respects, when you, when you come out of footy and the transition can often be really, really difficult. And I think I'll, I like to think I did it reasonably well just with the study, but nothing can really prepare you for life after sport and it's, it's damn hard. And so maybe I was one of the lucky ones that were able to play for an extended period of time, but also the impact that can have on you when I retired, I was 33. So in some respects, you've, you almost lost the most productive part of your development into the workforce. So in some respects, you know, I was certainly jumped into the fire, prepared myself as best I could. But those first, you know, two years at Merrill's were, were a steep learning curve. I, I still remember certainly listening to what everyone else did and how they broke. And everyone has a different way of um, expressing their views and whatnot. So it was, you have to learn really quickly, otherwise you're out of the industry. It's pretty cutthroat like, like support. And I made a lot of cold I wasn't given any clients, <laughs> institutional clients. Is that right? Yeah. Clean I, sheet? I literally gra- grabbed a sheet, went down all the, the larger clients, which a lot of the other guys had either been allocated. I went right down to the bottom of that sheet where there was no client contact. And I just started cold calling people. And four or five years later, they ended up becoming you know big funds and good friends and, and great clients. And you learn a lot of people that are on the other side that can help you along that journey as well. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me a lot when I first became a journalist in 1993, exactly the same experience. We'll come back to that though, but that mark that everyone, you star Leo Barry or Leo Barry, you star, it's what people remember you for, rightly or wrongly. Has that been a hindrance or has it been a help in your career? Yeah, it's interesting thinking about that. I definitely like your playing career just remembered by, you know, an integral market, a moment, a mark that, you know, personified 72 years in between premierships. It was something you always reflect on and still, you know, gets brought up today. I enjoy <laughs> accepting free uh, free beers on, on the back of that, especially uh, through the final series. But also, you know, moving or transitioning into, you know, funds management, I think, in some respects, it was a bit of a double-edged sword. I think sometimes people think you're a bit of a um, a project, or you're just being given a, an easy ride into a rails run into the industry, which it is a very difficult industry to get 
to get a foot in the door. I suppose one thing I learned pretty quickly was use your contacts, use your nows to actually get your foot in the door. But once you get there, you've actually got to walk through it. And I, you know, I think there were a few clients that made it hard, even internally at, at Merrill's. They thought it maybe was a bit of a bit of a joke or a bit of a, you know, that, that play for that particular month or that year. But I think over time, you know, as you learn in footy, it's it's a competitive game. You got to you make mistakes. You got to get back up and and always put your best foot forward. And I think having had both a, a playing career, a sporting career, but and also a, a financial career. They're both very similar, and the similarities are actually quite stark. Very competitive, dog eat dog world. <laughs> you can't actually hit people in funds management, unlike uh, <laughs> unlike football, which I, did, I I didn't mind doing. Certainly within the, the the rules of the game, but yeah, there's a scoreboard, and it's it's always really competitive. And it's daily on on the share market. Yes. Before we leave the marks, I, I was having a look at it the other day. Ty Keneally chips it out to you. It's yep. getting towards the end. No one's quite sure how long to go. Yep. You do the right thing. Big left foot kick down the line. Yep. Dean Cox, I think it was, takes yeah. the mark. Were, were you petrified at that stage? You thought, I've done everything right here. Well, yeah, and it's it, coming straight back yeah. at us. Yeah, <laughs> well, interestingly, if you look back at it, and Adam Goods always brings it up, like there was a short little kick on the 45 meter mark. And I wasn't a bad kick, but I wasn't, especially in the, the 33rd minute of a grand final, I wasn't quite uh, prepared to take that kick. And Darren Jolly was obviously sliding across, kick it long to your ruckman. And, um, you know, Dean, he was a, a great player and now um, heavily influenced uh, in, the, in the Swans' um, assistant coach and uh, is doing some great things at the footy club at the moment. Whether it was a free kick, I probably think it was. Um, and he's obviously <laughs> slid Darren Jolly under the ball Underneath and took the mark him, yeah. and, and played on really quickly. And to be honest, I was still sitting in the, in the pocket admiring my kick. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Pretty quick. It was amazing. I was surprised moment. at how much he could get on that left foot of his to get it back down there. Yeah, he, yeah, he, no, he got he, a fair he, bit of it. He was quick. Yeah, he kicked it nearly you know, 55 metres at least. So yeah. uh, right to the hot spot in front of the goals. And um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get there. You did well. Well done. So let's let's go back a ways, like we do on this show. And you grew up down in Daniloquin, which yep. happens to be only about an hour and a half where I grew up in yep. Collie Ambley, as we know. Centre of the Rice University. Yes, it is. People wouldn't know that. They no, second, second, the second biggest rice mill in the world. Sunrise. That's uh, that's, that's in Daniloquin. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the the epicentre of the Daniloquin community and uh, a lot of rice farmers. And they still grow rice there. I yeah, know in Collie Amley they've put in a lot of other crops now. They've yeah, used them. yeah. Well, as you as, as you're probably aware, rice is on the scale of um, input costs. You know, water is a major part of that. And we've had three really good seasons of rain, but the previous three was uh, I think it had been the first time there'd been only one crop actually sowed in, in Daniloquin through that period. Um, so it was obviously, you know, difficult, but it, uh, it ebbs and flows just on on the rain and we're having plenty of it at the moment. Lots. Yeah, I've got to go down to Wagga, which is not too far away yep. this weekend. We're not sure whether we can camp there. It's that wet. So just in Daniloquin, what did your parents do? Small town of about 7,000 people, yeah, big right. rice growing community yep. near the border of Victoria, so yep. very Victorian influence. Yep. Yep. So what, what, what did they do and what did you used to talk about as a family? What were the dominant themes of discussion? Yeah, so Dad, Dad grew up in the Mallee. He was a wheat farmer. His family uh, had owned the farm there for quite a while. He was one of nine. The older brother, he obviously started working on the farm, so he had to go move away and cut his own teeth. And at that stage, they were releasing land and water rights, which is uh, another yep. interesting topic. Back he went in, in the ballot, did he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah and got, got his water license and allocation. That's obviously around the 70s, early 70s. Played for Daniloquin, the local footy club. Yeah, we lived about 30 minutes out of town in a little uh, district called Mayrung, which is in between Blighty and um, and Drillery for those people that can look it up well, in the map. Towns, they're, 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 yeah, they're, not, they're ones that don't uh, sort of roll off the tongue so many or, or people don't know. One of six, we all grew up. We all went to, uh, there was a lack, actually a little country school called Mayrung, which is a, had the one teacher. At one stage, we made up about a quarter of the schools, the Barrys. <laughs> you know, growing up in a little town like that, Composite uh, classes or yeah, no, K from, through from, to six from, in one from class. K to six in one class classroom. So it was it was an interesting upbringing. Great being able to grow up on a farm was something that um, I wish my kids could experience. It was really good. Even just living up on a on a farm life was, was great. Dad, you know, they, he had a few sheep, cattle, grew rice, bit of wheat, whatever whatever season uh, would uh, have the best return. And and so you talk business a fair bit. You bring it home. I know. No, on my family, my grandfather was a rice farmer as well at Leeton. Yeah, okay. And yep. just about every conversation was about the price of rice this year because you used to get paid at the end of yes, the period. Yes. There was first payment, second payment. Yep. What was yep. water going to cost this year? Yeah. Did you you didn't have those discussions? No, not not, not really. No, no. Our discussions didn't really around the dinner table didn't really sort of focus on that. I've got an older brother who works in the ag game as well and, and four sisters. 
is, but yeah, no, it wasn't a wasn't a, wasn't a topic of conversation. And what what about footy? Were you allowed to talk sport with the girls around the table, or do they? Yeah, get no, we're, we're, like all small little country towns, the the town is it runs around sport, and we're a sporting family. Mum was a, a gun netballer in town, and Dad played for Dunlop and Rams through his career, and. And that was obviously something, that, you know, as a family we, we did. The, the girls played netball and the boys played footy. And like all those things, it was, you know, for a small community, it, it was sort of the, the, the heartbeat for everyone and, and a way for the community to get together and um, socialise. Mum and dad sort of made the decision to send all of us to boarding school just to potentially get some other opportunities. So, you know, once we all sort of hit year nine or 10, we, we went to boarding school. So Where did, where did the other siblings go? Down uh, south? Because yeah, most people from there would go to Melbourne. So yeah, all, the, all the girls went to Presentation College in Windsor, down in Melbourne. My brother went to St. Pat's in Ballarat and then subsequently for, we sort of, I was trying to get a, maybe a scholarship through sport down in Melbourne, but the Swans said they were going to draft me though at a, at a period where they could draft any kid from New South Wales. So I was fortunate enough to get a gig up here in boarding school at Riverview. Terrific. So just in terms of your sporting prowess, yep. what we remember is you weren't a tall defender, yep. but you played on some of the bigger guys and did very well. Yep. Um, good leap, leaping Leo, as we got to know you, but also pretty quick. Were, yep. you, were you a good athlete in your time when you were down around Deniloquent? Yeah. Oh, look, uh, and what did you specialise in, sprinting I, or I think I nearly distance? missed a term of school in year 10 just from playing sport. You know, made sort of sort of state level, you know, high jump and long jump and, you know, cricket, tennis, football. If there was any sport that you had to chase a ball or compete, I, I was amongst it. And But footy was the one I, I, I really excelled at. But the amount of times mum and dad would have to drive you around the state to Victoria with uh, the mileage we we end up doing over that journey would uh, would have um, certainly meant a lot of thousands of, uh, of Ks. And you you were competitive? Yeah. Or you just like chasing a ball? No, I'm competitive. Yeah. Still competitive. Even what I do now, I'm competitive. I think if you, if you don't have that, you can't make it. And that's whether, you know, I, I suppose you, know, you reflect on your own life and uh, whether it's business or sport, if, if you're not competitive or you don't have a, you don't like winning, you know, what's the incentive to get out of bed every day and compete? Reason to get to work on time, reason to beat your competition on, on you know, now with our, our numbers in the fund. Um, and it's something that, has always driven me and will be with me till the, till the day I die, I think so. Going up to Riverview in yep. Sydney, that's a long way from Deniloquin. Yeah. The easy journey, as I said, is down south, yep. Ballarat, Melbourne. Was it, was that difficult transition to go, what is it, about a nine-hour drive yeah, up to Sydney? Yeah, about a nine or ten-hour drive. I still remember when we had a um, – we went to see Riverview and, you know, we flew up in the plane and in a little, I'd only been on a plane a couple of times, I think even before that, I'd only been to Sydney twice before, um, you know, we'd seen Riverview and, and, and for anyone that's been to the school. So coming from Dunalukin High, which, you know, <laughs> if you, if you pass the HSC, you're, you're ducks, I think, not, not to be disparaging, but, but then to go to a school like Riverview, which it's, it's sort of chalk and cheese. And I remember, still remember driving through the, the front gates and we were absolute mum and dad's jaw nearly hit the floor was one of the most impressive grounds that we'd ever seen. And, and that was, you know, interestingly through sport, you get the opportunities to do things and you put the football thing aside. I think going to Riverview was life-changing for me, just on the, the ability to go to boarding school, but also just the academic side of it. It wasn't something I really focused on. And, you know, I did okay at high school, but I, I got no doubt the marks I got were certainly attributed just in the environment, being in being in boarding school and having that structure around it, and also the was the there peer, expectation the peer, peer that you, you did have to perform reasonally well compared to Denelicon, where as you said, if you if you did your HSC, you, you've achieved. Oh, a lot. look, uh, it's like anything. You only put expectations on yourself, and I could have easily gone up there and just sort of bludged away and got through. You know, tried to at least pass. I suppose I was up there for for football, and in year twelve, that was my first year at the Swans, so I'd, I'd have to jump in a cab two times a week. Catch a cab to the SCG, train. I used to do all my gyms, gym work at, um, at at Riverview and then travel on weekends. So I was, I was still actually away quite a lot. This is in year 12. The school really, under, you know, understanding of the situation, that also placed a, a fair bit of um, expectations on, on myself and time management and also trying to make sure I had my head, head in the books. And, and what did you through. like at school in the classroom? Which subjects were you stronger at and did you enjoy? <laughs> Funnily enough, design and technology. I was okay at maths and English and a lot, but I'm, I've got a pretty creative sort of mind and I still remember year 12 project. I think, you know, I built a, a piece of machinery which my dad could utilise in on, on the farm and got pretty good marks actually. It was uh, one of those things. So I'm pretty handy with my, I'm pretty good with my hands. And So the and farm I'm, came through. It did. It did. <laughs> Very so. good. And then you, you mentioned there you got through year 12, but yep. you were already starting to play with the swans, yep. going to training and whatnot. Yeah. They were a team on the rise back then. I think by 1996, they made 
made a grand final. That's right. There yeah. were some big names there. Yeah. Some you you, yeah. you went on and played a lot yeah. of games with, but there was Plugger, there was yeah. Paul Kelly. Yeah. Overwhelming, daunting. How did you feel? Oh, I still tell the story. I, so my the year I, I got drafted in, um, my, my season was 95. They We drafted Paul Ruse and uh, this other gentleman called Tony Lockett. Michael O'Loughlin, he was drafted that year, and also Matty Nix, he was, who's now the uh, Adelaide coach. So there'd been a big transition. A lot of players had come in out of the club. I still remember when I met Tony Lockett and you see these guys on telly and, you know, he's such a big aura about him. I, I, I almost forgot my own name when I introduced him. I think I, I, think I called myself Barry Leo. I, that's how nervous <laughs> I, I was. But to play with those guys and the, the club around that period, you know, Rodney Ede came in and it was a real transition. And after having very limited success for, you know, 10, 10 years to make the grand final in 96 was, you know, really put the swans on the map. Did you play under Rocket Ede? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that would have been a lesson in itself. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, look, you know, him and uh, Paul are a little, little bit different. I sort of struggled under under Rodney. Yeah, you know, a, a couple of areas. I'm a bit of a soft pellet and don't like some home truths sometimes. And um, he's good at handing them out. Yeah, but it took me a little bit of time. Yeah, it took me honestly. It probably did take me sort of you know five or six years to actually figure out. Like like all kids, when you come through, and I was probably no different. You're you know have big expectations, and you might be classified as or, or or flagged as being you know a future future player. But it it, it probably took me. A little, little bit more time you, to you understand. You started forward. Yeah, that's right. And then found your way down back. Yeah. That was obviously a good move. Yeah, it was. It was. Look, I played a little bit in the, in the midfield as well, but I just don't have an engine. I'm only, I'm only really good at the short, sharp, explosive explosive stuff. And so I did have to improve my fitness out of sight. And that was also one of the issues I did have early in my career, but got to the point where, you know, I've, I've got to start doing something and actually proving my worth. And, you know, it wasn't really around sort of to around, um, you know, 2000, 2001 that, you know, I started to play a bit more consistent footing, played in, in the back line. And ultimately, you I was so suited to play in the back line, just playing off on the shoulder of players, and always read the, read the play reasonably well. And you know, I wish I had it done it had done it a little bit earlier. And in that kind of structure that you have at the Swans, that everyone talks about, it's a great mm. place, great culture. Yep. Who who tells you, or does anyone tell you, you need to work on your fitness? And um, these are the other three or four things that you need to do if you're going to make it, because you wouldn't get that in the funds management industry. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, you, you you're after feedback in funds management. Um, footy's a little bit different. I, I must admit, I. The footy club from when I started till the early 2000s when Ruzi took over, it was almost chalk and cheese. And the reason I say that is the club have a really strong induction program where, you know, Matthew, if you, you get drafted the Swans, you know, you're, you're actually taken through a really, you know, in-depth structure around induction, how you should prepare yourself, the expectations you have, the club have. And certainly in the in the in the 90s and even through that period in when I started, it was pretty much just go there and just try your best and you know, hopefully you'll figure it out. We'll give you a few tips here and there. But definitely if I had to come through and had of experienced that, maybe it might, I might have been a bit more successful early on, but that's all part of the uh, the journey and the experience. And did it teach you also your dad now these days, does it teach you that it takes a while for people to find their stride to grow up a bit to get a bit more mature because that was a fairly yeah. long journey where you said you really didn't hit your stride until 2000, 2001. Yeah. That's what was yeah. that, five years out of school? So there's a long, yeah, long journey no, that's, there. That, no, you're right. So, and that's, you know, like anything, I suppose. Always apply. Any lesser player probably would have cut. You know, the only average the average length on a list is only three years for anyone that gets drafted. Well, actually, might even be only one year. So it's a, it's a pretty cutthroat sort of industry. Yeah, you know, I think I showed enough in the early stage that um, I was worth persisting with. But funnily enough, you know, I think it was after my seventh year I I won the most improved award at the Swans, which <laughs> you know you can sort of laugh at it. But it's like any experience you you learn from it. I've learned from reflecting on what I what I what I did or what I didn't do in that early stage of my career, and you know it's part of the journey. And before we leave the Swans, obviously Paul Ruse was a big part of that yep. period where you were there over that whole journey, and eventually the famous speech. Well, here it is. Yeah, uh, he was yeah. the coach when the won the won the flag. Yep. What learnings did you take away from Paul as a leader? Yeah, and that you could use going forward because yeah. you've got to be a leader as a parent. You've got to be a leader as a partner yeah. in a funds management firm. What what did you take away? Well, having played with Ruzi for a number of years as well, five five years, he, he was a he was a, had strong on field leadership, used his voice, led by example, all these didn't things. Didn't quite you know. have your pace though. <laughs> no, he didn't, but he had an engine. He could run. He was an elite runner. I still remember Paul, we wouldn't even see him before January every year. Like he would obviously he would living in the US, Tammy, his his wife, he'd spend time in the off season back in back in the US. But he would rock up mid January, fit as a fit. All, always prepared well, you know, always um, 
did the right thing, looked after himself, and guys like that, you know, to play 350 games or whatever he did and play for such an extended period of time just shows that, um, you know, he had a strong sense of what was what's required. And so he he certainly used that experience and led that into his coaching coaching style. And Ruzi, yeah, I absolutely love it. I owe a lot to him about for my my career. But one thing Ruzi always did do, and he wasn't about ranting and raving. Um, it was always about, you know, direct communication, direct conversation with his players, but also he really delegated well. And the, what I mean about that is he, he certainly developed in the playing group to have ownership of, you know, it's your club. It's not, it wasn't just his club, it being being the coach or the CEO, but ultimately any any club is, is, is the players club because they're the ones that go out and represent themselves. And what he was able to really instill in the playing group in the early 2000s was, was certainly instrumental for that. And you also acknowledge that everyone's different. Everyone plays different. Everyone has different personalities. So he was really good at sort of identifying that and and dealing with the individual uh, is in you know, the best way to get the most out of his performance. And that was certainly the case for me. You know, I, I was very much a, a confidence-type player, didn't like criticism, which you know, I can take that either way. But, you know, in, in the end, he basically – He understood he, that. He understood that. And he, he basically said, you know, if you think you can mark the ball, you just go for it. I don't even care if you drop it. and, and just Until you it. do drop yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't have taken that mark that day. That's for sure. Oh, that's a good point. So there was encouragement when you saw it coming back. You say, yeah, I can he, commit you know, to this. I can have a go at yeah, it. Yeah. And, and even like as a junior, like you, uh, I used to play dynamic, you run, you take, you know, you take people on. And probably in the first half of my career, I was always a bit nervous about making mistakes. And that's, you know, that's a really good lesson for me. Even in funds management, you're always going to make mistakes. That's, that's a given. If you're not making mistakes, you're not having a go, but it's, it's how you deal with those mistakes and, you know, what happens with the next contest or the, the next bad decision in, in funds management as well, which stock are you going to look at? Sometimes it, it, it feels, you feel tight in the stomach, but you still have to ultimately make a, make a decision and it's how you um, pick yourself up and, and go for the next next. Well, well, the good thing about funds management, you make the mistakes daily, so yesterday's <laughs> yeah, mistake doesn't yeah, matter anymore. Yeah, but that's, that's even the same footy. You make mistakes training and that's the point of, that's the point of it. Well, you're, at that stage, you know, you're living a dual life. You started to study. Obviously, you're spending a lot of time playing football yep. and, and at the top level. Yeah. But what triggered you to think oh, I've start thinking ahead? Like yeah, when yeah. footy finishes, as you said, it's a, it's a lot of people find it tough. Yeah, you've recognised that. But what was the trigger there, and what did you decide to do? What what was going on? Yeah, so straight out of school, I, I did an undergrad at sports science at ACU, um, just over at North Sydney, and I just sort of I did it part time. Um, I think what I experienced at at, um, at review was a really good experience, and. Got a reasonable mark and got in, in, got into uni okay. And I did it part-time, um, probably didn't apply it. Like, you know, I was there to play footy and that was your big dream. But I always, in the back of my mind, I always had this incentive of, what happens if I get cut? Like, you know, first, you know. You sign, Nothing like a bit of fear. Yeah, yeah, the uh, fear of failure. And also, what are you going to do after footy? And, you know, all those sort of things did play in my mind. I, the AFL do have a really good program, the AFLPA, where they actually pay for all your universities. You're mad not to to accept it and at least do it. Not to suggest I, I might have failed a couple and didn't apply myself to, you know, probably to the limit of the law, which I probably should have, but at least I was still in the system and I was, I was still seeing, you know, actively, you know, got the mind actively actively working. I didn't know what I wanted to do. The only reason I did the sports science course was, um, you know, I like sport and and applied that. You know, it took me about five years to get get through it and then still had that, you know, that thing in the back of my mind, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And so that's that um interest moved on to the, you know doing the MBA and where was that at that AGSM in Union New South Wales which is a fantastic course and really good industry. I'd, I'd actually love to to go back and do it now because you know, I, I could really apply a lot of the subjects where for me I was playing for, I was running chasing a leather ball around so I couldn't really apply a lot of the policies or you know subject matter in that respect but, but it must um, have been fairly time consuming yeah the good thing about doing that was at night which was actually a lot better beneficial than doing an undergrad just at, um, during the day so so yeah. tra- train in the morning sleep in the afternoon study at night yeah that's, that's pretty <laughs> it yeah that's pretty much it um, and so around that even around that stage I got married pretty early well, I was 24 20 yeah 25 to my lovely wife Sarah, and we had kids. I was when I was sort of twenty six, so that adds another sort of element to it. And life after football and, and, and sport, and so got through that. Still same, did it sort of part time, and then once I got the MBA done, it was like sort of what next? I thought was that a bit overwhelming? Not to downgrade your science course, yeah. your sports science, but an MBA normally carries a fairly high caliber of student. Yeah. So when yeah. you walked in, 
obviously in those days it was all contact classes. It, yeah, that's it, right. it wasn't yeah, no, remote. It was. No, no, it was all. all so classes. was that a bit overwhelming, a bit um, daunting? And would you have any advice to anyone who walks into that environment? Yeah, I oh, look. Everyone comes from different backgrounds and different, you know, CEOs of of, of corporates. And I've actually met a couple of CEOs are actually that I met over that over that journey back in um, in the job I do now. And I suppose they were really understanding of that. They, you know, they understood that um, you know I, I I was playing football. I was a professional sportsman, but it was so some parts of it would be difficult for me to apply. But I managed to managed to get through okay. And like anything, you, you actually learn off other people in your class. And like anything, you you never rock up to, uh, up to any uni course and you know everything. It's like yeah. So you got to be able to learn and um, yeah, learn some valuable lessons off other people in the class and um, just to develop yourself and grow. How long did it take you to get through? It was about five years as well. So ten years of part time study. Yeah, pretty, pretty long much. journey. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and sort of coming in the back of it—that's that was probably the next stage. I thought, well, you know, you, to my point before, if you come out when you're post thirty, you need some experience, and so that sort of twigged my twigged, twigged my my interest. Did a bit of part time work, not that I got paid. It was just more about experience at a few sports management groups, just to see what what that was like. So you sort of got a pretty quick um, quick view that probably wasn't for, wasn't for me. And then, like the, all these things, I suppose, you know, the opportunity which sport provides is you get to meet some really interesting people that are either sponsors or connections through football that, um, you know, inquired about, you know, just spending some time at City on the desk. And, you know, from the day dot, the dynamic movement on a trading floor was, I was sort of hooked from day one. And I spent about three years just going in every day when, when I had a spare time, just sitting on the on the trading desk. And no, it was, to, to the credit, City were fantastic, allowing me to do that. And you know, what, was it just equities then? or were you- Just equities, yeah. That's, that's, that's and that's you remember the gravi- people in there and what they were like? Gravitated to, yeah. Well, actually, figuring out what everyone did. That's more than- That normally takes about three to six months. <laughs> it does. It does. Because some people don't do anything. No. Well, that's that's another issue or go for lunch more. But just getting an understanding of the business and sitting with research and sitting in morning meetings and just the dynamic nature of markets and having not been exposed to it you know, my whole life, it was one of those things. Back to the point, it, it was dynamic and it was competitive and it sort of ticked a lot of the boxes that gained my interest and still really drives me um, today. Then you get to the end, that, that fateful yeah. area where you finish sport, as you said earlier on, very difficult period for me. Yeah, people. yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, it was 2009. Yep. But you didn't end up at City. You ended up no. getting a job at Merrill's. How no. did that unfold? Yeah. So I knew it was going to be my last year, 09. I, I was completely mentally and physically sort of cooked and come to the end. You knew that then? I did. I just sort of sensed that. Um, problem, I actually got really fit in the preseason of 09. I handed in the captaincy. I, I had been captain up to that sort of state. I knew it was going to be my last year. Changed direction. A uh, big part of cartilage in the back of my kneecap just went just after years of wear and tear, and I spent the pretty much the whole year in in the rehab. I only played the last three games and um, was able to play the last few and have a, a good send off, which often doesn't sort of happen with players. You don't know when your last game is, but at least I, I knew that. So that whole sort of twelve months, you know, I was knocking a lot of doors because it, everyone was just coming out of the GFC. Even if investment banks were still around, that was that was a couple of the key questions. So well, in those, those years, nine, ten, if you had a job. That was the bonus. That's right. And so here I am, a 15-year-old footballer with a bit of experience, studied, but no real life experience in in, in markets that it, it could have been tough. And it was it was tough. So I got out the old Teledex and I went through all, all more contacts. I'd obviously prepared myself as best I can, but you know, I knocked on a lot of doors and a lot of firms and sort of made had to make the decision where I'd go to retail broking or institutional and and also through the through the footy club, you meet some, you know, meet some really successful people that can help guide you or at least give you give you some um, guidance around the best best approach. Yeah, ultimately I I needed someone to give me a break, um, and it was uh, it wasn't until I went and had an interview with Matt Unsworth and um, the guys at Merrill Lynch, which um, I think some some people didn't want to hire me because it were to your point there were still people that had been losing their job, and mm. you know Bank of America Merrill Lynch that they'd merged to a to a new entity, but they were actually coming out of the the GFC probably a bit quicker. They've been recapitalized, and I was plonked on a, on a, on the desk, had a seat, and. You know, I, I tried to cut my teeth in that sector and industry. Got the blank sheet of paper. Yeah, pretty much. Off you go. Was that daunting, that interview? 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I must admit, you've got because to- Merrill Lynch, even though it had the yeah, problems, yeah. it was the thundering herd. Yeah, that's right. It's a big name out of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was imposing because it, you know, you know, going into that sort of industry and meeting guys and you know, making the decision whether they're going to hire and fire that can be daunting. But as best I could, I just sort of conveyed my my strengths and weaknesses and interpersonal skills is something that's you know one of my sort of strengths and I enjoy talking to people and that's also a very strong point of um, you know institutional broking. You got to be a personal sort of person, uh, individual, and being able to pick up the phone, make have those, be scared of that phone. Have, those <laughs> have those difficult conversations with uh, with you know some of the industry experts like yourself um, can be a bit daunting. But I'm I you know in that first six, I, I would have made some terrible terrible phone calls. Well, I'll never forget. I, I was at Wilson Asset Management at the time. And you came to see us, I think, with one of your analysts. I could be yeah. wrong here. And it was myself and Chris Stotter, you know, well-mad yep. Swans yep. man who's got his own firm now. Yep. And we both walked away and said, Leo's a nice guy. We're not, we're not <laughs> sure. Like <laughs> I said in the intro, we're not sure if he's cut out for yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's- And you looked a bit starry-eyed. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it- but, but I watched over, I, I left Wilson's within about 18 months. But yeah. by the end of that 18 months, yeah. you'd found your feet. It yeah. didn't take long. Yeah, no. Uh, no. Well, probably your example is everyone else <laughs> I was speaking to on the market. But to that point, and Chris is really probably a really good example, you know, and, and Wilson's were probably one of those uh, accounts that were off the list as well. And yep. one of the smaller ones, which I- we were happy to get someone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the uh, the uninformative call that, I, that I'd make. <laughs> yeah, to that point, you, you learn off other people in the industry and you you just got to be like a sponge. You got to soak up information, learn off even people in your own organisation. Well, interestingly enough, even you know, going to a big investment bank, there's no induction program. You know, I referred to about the Swans do it really well, even in corporate land. Not even at Merrill Lynch. No, nah, it was- Global firm. No, nah, you, you would have think there would have been a job description- Ways to actually help you do your job effectively, which, you know, that was pretty much non-existent. So you're almost left to your own accord. In some respects, it was all about the P&L and, and, where, and where you, uh, where the accounts and your effort came into. So, but yeah, learn, learn pretty quickly, I think. And, and it was small companies. Initially, it was uh, across the whole market. It was actually, but for, for my own development, it was actually probably better, you know, looking at the big banks, looking at the resource companies. So it actually, I'd provide me a bit more of a, a, a breadth of coverage and knowledge across the whole market. Not just doing small caps, but ultimately, and you can probably attest to it as well. Small caps is it's dynamic, it's interesting. Also, that void of information is a lot larger versus the sort of the top hundred companies. You know, you get, a lot of the smaller companies aren't covered. And I often, and one thing I actually end up, I think I felt I did really well back in the day. I actually did a lot of the micro cap conferences, which are now done regularly. Well, you dis- I remember you discovering your own stocks. Yeah, yeah. Well, that did was you kind of bring them around. Yeah, that, and that, was, that was, a, was you off the desk. Yeah, well, which, okay. which is something that used to happen. And when I first started, yeah. the brokers off the desk would find companies and. Yeah. Give the green light to show them around. These days, it's a lot harder. I think. Yeah, no, it is. And and back there, I sort of identified a, a bit of a void in the market um, where you know you could find some of these really undiscovered gems. We probably weren't at the right sort of market cap or size, but had a story to tell, and you know mightn't have any any brokerage cover, but maybe I, I was it. So, and I had a couple of other really good industry friends that we all sort of you know they help helped me along that journey as well, who are still friends uh, today, and being able to identify some new ideas and new stories. Create your own market. Which was and, and during which that was period, did you work out what type of investor you would be or were becoming? Because yeah. obviously you've got to start thinking like an investor. Yeah. Why is this an interesting story? Who would be interested in it? Why would the share price go up? Yeah. Why has it got extra value? Did you yeah. work during that period? Did you start to think, well, this is what I like? This is the type of investor I am? Yeah. I think initially it really I really gravitated to a lot of the technology sort of stocks because they were sort of new and dynamic. And there's, you know, business like Nearmap and, you know, geospatial stuff. A lot of this sort of new And we're coming out of the GFC that that four or five years afterwards where yeah. a lot of those stories came into their own. Yeah, yeah. I, I often found resources a little bit hard initially because it, you know, it's all done by drill bit and, you know, production was a, a little bit difficult. But I, I certainly gravitated a lot of the technology stuff or stocks that were, you know, growing exponentially. And, you know, those really capital light type businesses, you know, you can really see, you know, op- a high operating leverage. You, know, you want, want businesses like that that you, that you can. Um, and also growth, you know, you, you can't, you can't get, uh, you always get attracted to businesses that are growing exponentially. And, you know, funnily enough, around that sort of period, you could really identify some stocks that were. You obviously start to migrate towards talking to clients that have a similar view. Is that how yeah. it worked? And you learned a lot off them as you, as you push through that 
five or six years yeah. working on a desk. Interestingly, all clients are different and all funds are different. So in some respects, the role that you play on on, on sales and, and and small cap sales, you have to be a chameleon. You have to almost change your message to a particular client depending on their actual investment process. So I used to talk to value guys. I used to talk to hedge fund guys. I used to talk to growth guys, core guys that do both. So the messaging you're actually portraying, you actually have to under, uh, identify what they want. And so you have to mold your, your message towards what is of the most beneficial to that end fund managers. And, and that stands true today. We're fortunate enough, we, we, we sort of run a core method, which is sort of value and also growth. But so you need to look across the, the entire market. And that's a very similar to what you used to do as a, um, when I used to work at Merrill's. Okay. So your family's growing, you're at Merrill Lynch, and then you decided to make a change. How did Fairview come about? You, it was a change moving to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Um, small, I mean, not a small family, a large family, but a young family. Yep. Big change, new job. Give us some colour around how that yeah, came about yeah. and what made you think, yeah, I can do this on the buy side, as we like to call yeah, it. Yeah, really enjoyed my experience over the on the sell side. It was five, I was on the on the sell side for five years. I probably identified after about year four that I needed another challenge. I thought I I, I could. And I love the investing side of, side of, of, of the market. And you also, felt that coming through. Yeah, that you'd like and to also, be and a also buyer the, or stock. Also, same old thing. The longevity of your job. I didn't want to be um, that same guy sitting on a, on, a, on a institutional desk, you know, selling equity ideas. I wanted to sort of move on to something else which, which may help with longevity and, and, and ultimately loved, you know, having dealt well on the other side with some, some fund managers, really enjoyed the involvement of what's required in, on the investment side. I probably had 70 to 80 clients, institutional clients. Fairview were one of those clients that I had really enjoyed the company of, of those um, each individuals. Uh, and then um, I think one thing they they uh, acknowledged that my wife, Sarah's from Melbourne and then I'd moved to Melbourne. Not that I'm, I certainly miss Sydney and I, I had been up here for such a long period of time, but they knew I'd moved down and, you know, the opportunity to, you know, manage money and invest in in, um, in stocks was certainly appealing to, to myself. At that stage, my older son was in year six and year four and a little little girl had just been born. So, yeah. How many kids? I've got three. Just three. three. Yeah, three kids. The transition to into high school would have been a bit easier for them as well. So the timing was um, was right. It all, all the stars aligned. Yep. So you go to Fairview. It's an established business. Your role there initially is what? So they, they have a very um, collaborative approach, and it still stands true today. So you know, as a, a portfolio manager, which like other normally other funds, you maybe come in at an analyst analyst level. But for us, we um, being a portfolio manager, the reason we don't have we didn't we never had sector sector coverage. So you basically you know small uh, caps, small caps, got to be got to be a generalist. Got to be a generalist, and because you look at so many industries, you know, you look at, you know, you know resources and you know, healthcare and tech and you know industrials and you know telco. It's just yeah. aged care. Aged care is probably not not a great one to do, or site visits aren't great. But you'll learn about you, it as you, you get older. Get, yeah, <laughs> you do. You have to be a generalist, and and so not being pigeonholed. And I suppose. My role at, at, at Merrill's, I was a generalist. And so for me to actually go to a particular sector, have sector coverage, I probably didn't have the, the strength in one particular sector, but coming in, in a fair view as a generalist certainly appealed to me because I wasn't just thrown a particular sector to, to cover. And also I think that's that's what they had identified as well. And inquisitive, trying to always find new ideas. And You're a hunter? Hunter, yeah, always hunting and always looking for new ideas and looking to learn and yeah, try and make some money and yeah. And tell us a bit more about Fairview. You, yeah. you mentioned that it's value and growth. Yep. Um, generalists, so you cover a lot of sectors. Yes. If I, if I was to invest with Fairview, yeah. what, what's the pitch? What does the yeah, company do? I would classify if you were to you put your money in a Fairview as your, your small cap default. We invest in resources where a lot of our peers don't. Probably the only one sort of sector we may benchmark versus the smalls, a lot of our peers don't invest in, in resources. We have 50 to 60 stocks in our in our fund. We're running you know, sort of north of uh, 500 mil. We're really mindful about capacity. We're not actively marketing at the moment. We, And when I say that, you don't want to actually run too much money because it makes it really difficult to move in and out of your positions. We're always fully invested. And so that's to my point being a, if you want exposure to small caps, you know, Fairview is that. We are core investors. We look at, we own stocks that are on 100 times PE on, and also some that aren't quite profitable. And we own, you know, stocks that are on sort of six times PE. And I suppose what we're bottom up stock pickers, we're mindful of the macro environment, which has been 
noisy to say the least at the moment. We look for stocks that have catalysts. And catalysts, when I say that, if the catalyst reach to either derate or re-rate, we will you know, either exit a position um, or on the other flip side, if you can identify something the market's probably not quite understanding or probably hasn't really appreciated. So uh, that, that's, that's, that's the secret ingredient, yeah. finding that catalyst. Yeah, that's right. There's no point buying a stock just because it's on five times. There's no point buying it because it'll be five times in 10 years' time where a lot of the value stocks do trade. As you've seen over the last you know, 12 months, value stocks have had a you know, pretty good you know, 12 months over the uh, over that journey, but we feel just with our knowledge and we're all, we're you know, ex-analysts, the other two two peers are ex-analysts and been in markets for quite a long time that we, uh, you know, we're active, active managers and we're, you know, we're all about capital growth. And small caps revalue fairly quickly. So I imagine can, your yeah. turnover is reasonably yeah, it's large. Around, yeah, around 60, 70%. You know, we- um, So you got to find new ideas that, all the time. Well, that's, that's actually the, the key to it. And so we have, you know, 50, 60 stocks in our fund, which some people may say, it's a larger part, but that sort of tail gives us more access to management, the ability to actually grow with the business over time and, and get a, get some more insights. But also, it's also a function of our turnover is of new idea generation. And so on an average year, we, sh- we should be putting 20 to 25 new ideas in. And so that's a what happens if you're putting 20 to 25 new ideas in, you're actually getting rid of some of your old, stale, less catalyst-driven sort of stocks. And so that's a natural progression where you're getting new ideas. And you know, over the journey, you know, I've been a fair view, um, seven and a half years now and over that time it's the stocks that yeah don't have really high conviction that don't have the catalyst that ultimately end up costing you your funds return because they're stale and stale ideas and so it's like a funnel you need to have these new ideas so you, you got to avoid that tail that's right yeah a bit more about you in terms of the psychological component of investing which yep. is which is a daily battle so good buyer and good seller of stocks, Whoa, um, getting better at both. Still learning. Still learning. Yeah, I, you know, I made some shocking calls when I started because it's it's another completely new skill set as well. And so, with a lot of the, especially institution stocks, you've got to have decent sized market cap, and you've got to look a little bit longer on your investment process. Where if you're buying personally, you know, you can sell in and out quickly. You know, in in and because of the size of the money, and actually that was the other thing. Running a reasonable size fund, you have got to be really mindful about liquidity. And by you know, when I say that, is the ability to buy in and out of a out of a stock effectively without having too much market impact. So there are a couple of things we really learned. And our fund, we had a tough 2016. Is a really good sort of reflection, and we underperformed the market quite materially in a quarter when there's a big rotation out of small caps. At that particular stage, we had 30% of our fund was in sub 500 mil market cap. And the old uh, the old word about lobster pots certainly come true in that period when we're trying to rotate out of some of those those um, stale ideas. Currently in the fund, it's three to 4%. So we've actually gone up a little bit in the liquidity side. So those, those, um, those lessons have certainly been learned. But like all of us, we're not wedded to stocks. If you see if you see a negative catalyst coming up, yeah, we're, we're quite prepared, and I'm pretty ruthless, ruthless on the sell. If the investment thesis yes. is proven wrong, yep. the catalyst doesn't work out. That happens not yep. infrequently. I, yeah. I know that myself. Yeah. Then you are a good seller. You'll say, yeah, because, yeah. because you've got to answer yourself there. You've got to say, yeah. okay, got that wrong. Yeah. And we're always- And brokers are normally better at that <laughs> than yeah. fund managers yeah, yeah, because, yeah, like because you, they, you they've just wedded, got that mentality. You can get wedded to a stock and you know, you've know you met management over a long journey or a period of time, you've become wedded to the idea. But that's something I've certainly improved. But also- you know, that idea generation, you've got to continue to hunt for new ideas. You can't just rely on broker research for that. And it's interesting, through COVID, it's been really difficult to get out and see companies because there's been a lot of the, a lot of the conferences have been either online and on Zoom, which I find difficult to get those real insights and read the, read the body language of a, of a company, but also just to see the face-to-face of a, uh, or sit across the other table. And so the last sort of two years have sort of been difficult for that. And also the broker broker coverage is, you know, it's down nearly 30% that of what, what it was sort of three or four years ago, even more. So getting out in the road, you know, pressing the flesh and, you know, trying to, you know, identify some new new ideas is-, is How many better. companies would you see? I would see five to 600 companies a, a year. And this is also one of the real- privileges of the job and people, you know, it's something I always, always reflect on. You meet some inspirational people that have created, a, you know, a business out of, out of their garage to be, you know, either global leaders on a, you know, uh, on, on a global scale or, 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 or domestically. And some of the people that have been able to do that are absolutely um, inspirational. And it's almost like the founders fund. We own a lot of, a lot of stocks in our, um, in our portfolio that have been created by the, uh, by the founder. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a good track record, especially in a small market like That's Australia. Right. 
own small caps. So you just mentioned briefly that you made some mistakes when you first started. Give, oh. give us a bit, bit more colour. Let's get a mistake out of you that went wrong and how you, how you dealt with it and maybe something that has gone right and what it taught you. Yeah, yeah, okay. What are the, there's a lot that go wrong. We've just got to be ha- half right. It, it might sound easier, but um, oh, look, we've, we've owned some – I don't want to name – the actual individual stocks, but the people involved, I think that's that's probably not fair on them and also also myself. But I, look, I, I, what I will say is in the first year, I, I made some really bad calls, um, certainly questioned my own longevity in the, in the industry, but a little bit like footy. But So 15 was your first year? That's right. But 16 was the tough year a to tough the fund. Yeah, yeah. And so, even, even, so as, was that even the, some of the seasoned investors who I was with um, learned some lessons around that today. Which so, so those first two years must have been difficult. Yeah, it was. Yeah, fifteen. We had a really good year, but I was only still, you know, very green behind the ears, and I'm still trying to learn the business. Sixteen was a really, really difficult year. That sort of really moulded me now, and in, in into the way I invest now, and, and certainly, um, you know, I was very, very growth orientated. I think in the start of my, my funds management business, I think I've certainly paired that back, and and because we're core investors, I, I, you do have to look at some of the lower, less volatile, less sexy um, sort of stocks. But that's something where I, I certainly have adjusted my investment profile and, and also knowledge around some of those ideas. Okay. We might get a name out of you on this one. A winner? Oh, near, near Map's been a cracker. And the only reason I bring that up more recently is we actually re-entered the stock only probably about two or three months ago and subsequently they got- You a, got two wins out of it. We got Yeah, we got a double edge d- down to the boundary line. So you, you obviously got onto that reasonably yeah, early, ran yeah. it through that, I, I don't know, 16 through to yeah. 2020 yeah. period, something yeah. like that. Yeah, the fund bought it at about 60 cents right at the start. I actually introduced the, the, the fund to Fairview, um, uh, near map to Fairview, one of the fun, one of the conferences I do I did back in the day and and subsequently we made an, an investment in, in, in near map. And for that business, uh, you know, they basically- Spatial, they provide all the mapping just in Australia, um, just on desktop. And you know, they'd actually had a free paywall. And so that was one of the first real catalysts for the for the for the organization. They actually put up a paywall and started charging people. And the, the usage have been really, really solid. You had a lot of councils, you know, a lot of roof tilers. The applications are quite quite large. And then subsequently after that, moving over into the US and replicating their model, being profitable in Australia and being able to fund that in in the US was was the next catalyst and yeah that uh you always got to sell some of your winners and we always readjust it was only half a percent of the fund when we first invested i think if we had have not sold any stock uh, at right at the end we basically exited around that sort of 450 um, and maybe sold the remnants uh, post that but it would have been 17 percent of our fund you always got to be mindful about risk and the size of our your positioning the largest holding in our funds about five percent so we're we're relatively risk averse in that respect and, and that's that's held true over the over these volatile so you gotta sell it as you go up and it, so you're always hit, reweighting it yeah. but um it would have been good to hold on to it till uh till it was 17 percent of the fund but well uh, as you've worked out risk management yeah, is a big and, part of funds yeah, management and more re- and more recently you know everyone's been talking about the fed raising rates inflation out of control you know over in the us north of seven percent yeah a lot of these technology stocks have absolutely been carted and so that's this year. That's this. That's this year, and and subsequently, you know, we had we've added probably four to four to five new technology. We've, we've been literally new tech for you know last sort of six to twelve months. We just thought the market had probably become a bit too negative on on some of these businesses, which are global high quality businesses. Um, you know, three hundred and sixty, you know, WiseTech, you know, TNE, um, and also Nearmap. There, there are a few names which we we added into the portfolio a couple of couple of months ago. Good timing. And subsequently, um, you know, over the last month. Or so there's a lot of these businesses have been getting a bid. Yeah, you know, they take people, over people, people could see value and yep. value in the uh, in, in the names. Yeah, it's definitely playing out that way. So just before we finish up with Fairview, the future there. You you talked about cognizant of fund size and yeah. where you operate and liquidity. Yep. So you you're happy in your job and and it's got longevity. Fairview just grows. The capital it's got over time and accumulates size. Yes, but grows on its own kind of organic growth. Is that how you see? Yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, the funds. That's been going, the dream. Funds been going for about thirteen years. You know, our three and five years we're right up in the top quartile of, of uh, versus our peers. So we've got a long long track record, and we're very experienced. We're all equal business owners. Love what we do, you know. Especially, you know, getting out on the road a bit more. It's you know through the COVID period, like like everyone, it's it's been and, and three's not a crowd. 
Three's not a crowd. No, no, you no. Get on well. There's no, yeah, no. There's well, being in funds management, it can be pretty dynamic, and you are, you have to enjoy each other's company. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Uh, it can be um, you know, a bit uh, cumbersome if it if, if it doesn't. And we're all in, different individuals, and I think that's the beauty of our our structure and the, the way we manage the portfolio. Bring something you to can't, the table. You can't all be the same, and and so you know if, if we all have different strengths and weaknesses. Mike used to be a healthcare analyst. He's really strong in that area. And Tim, he used to um, he used to run at Acorn. He started that business, and he's really, really strong around you know some of the smaller names and also um, some of the tech. And you know, so we all sort of marry up pretty well, and we all uh, sort of bounce off. And certainly not wedded to any uh, particular stock. We're we're a team, like everything. If, if you're not uh, on the same page, it makes it pretty difficult to be successful. Well, let's finish up on that team note. So what's more stressful? The 100,000 at the MCG <laughs> trying to take that Dean Cox mark yeah, or bu- playing AFL footy, which is stressful yeah, week to week, yeah. or managing other people's money? Because you, you did yeah. differentiate between managing your own money yeah. and managing a fund, which is effectively someone else's money. I've always found there's a lot more stress managing someone else. As a yeah. managing my own money, I've only got to answer to myself. So, But you can compare it to football. So managing someone else's money versus – Playing that high level yeah. footy, sort of the question in my bet was I better at football or am I better at funds management? I've sort of asked myself the same question. Well, you're um, an all Australian at footy, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> an all Australian uh, funds uh, management well, team. Well, the Fairview won Money Manager of the Year in uh, two, yeah, 2020, so we've, we've had a couple of good years along the journey as well. Yeah, it's, it's funny when you when you play in front of a hundred thousand people at Grand Final Day. It's it's like you're playing. Well, for me anyway, as you become more experienced, you become it becomes less less of an impact for you, and you become because you're a bit in, in doing something. I suppose a lot of funds management become a bit more used to the stress and the, the stress around playing from a hundred thousand, and also you know managing uh, money on behalf of other people. I'd probably say they're even even odds. Yeah, I, I, I imagine. I, I mean, I've obviously never played more than in front of about fifty people, but yeah. but at least in a footy team, there's other people around you. Yeah. Sometimes funds management, despite being in a team, can be quite lonely. You can own a mistake. You can get you can confidence can get hit quite easily. Yeah, it's a good point. I probably maybe hadn't thought about that that way. But um, I, but I haven't. Played. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm thinking, not not my, that you're putting words in my mouth. You're, you're probably right there. Yeah, and now I suppose having a bigger, bigger, larger, broader group, you're in a squad of sort of forty guys and staff. It's it is a it is a larger group or organisation, but yeah, you're you're probably right. It can get a bit more lonely when there's only three three guys and it sort of sits on on, on you. But uh, and at Fairview, I said we'd leave it, but just come back. Anyone underneath you? If you've got a team, you've got the three partners. Just the three of us. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, just three of you us. You do all the work yourselves. Yep. Yeah, we do all that. We've so, got one one admin um, guy, Sean, who helps with a lot of our uh, compliance and. So responsibility stops, starts and stops with with you guys. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and that's the way we, we like it and we're pretty slim, sort of nimble sort of uh, business and, um, yeah, what opportunities come along for Fairview, we'll, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Well, let's hope it lasts for a lot longer yet. Yeah. And I think Steve Quartermain might have been right when you took the mark. Leo Barry, you star. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Congratulations on both careers. And let's, as I said, let's hope Fairview goes for a lot longer and is, continues to be a success. What an absolute pleasure to be interviewed by yourself, man. And I, I it's often I see a lot of the, um, you know, fundies that, uh, or institutional investors that, you know, when I started at, at Merrill's have a similar sort of story to yourself, but it's all, also good to uh, reminisce and, and always catch up with people in the industry and, and good people in the industry. You've done well. A lot of resilience. Yeah. You've come out on top. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. you.